I, I had this idea to write a book and to include the science, but I also wanted to capture everything I had learned in the bakery while I was still a beginner and it was still sort of fresh in my head. I thought it was finished and then I spent about a year trying, you know, sending proposals to publishers and getting rejected. Um, and so after about a year, I decided to self-publish it, which was really strange at the time. I know self-publishing is very accepted nowadays, but back then, you know, I remember my grad school advisor just looked at me in disgust, like, because, you know, in science, you would never self-publish your research. That would just be ridiculous. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative minds in the sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode, Emily Bueller, author of Bread Science, the Chemistry and Craft of Making Bread, joins us to help unravel the mysteries of naturally fermented bread. She shares her journey from scientist to baker to becoming an author and publisher writing and working with renowned bakers like Peter Reinhardt and Francisco Magoya. She helps explain why enzymes are the unsung heroes of fermentation, addresses some common misconceptions surrounding sourdough, and answers listener questions on the topics of water, refrigeration, proofing, and starters. Be sure to check out the Sourdough Podcast website for links to the Enzyme article, the Sourdough Citizen Science Experiment, and the illustrations from the book that are mentioned in our interview. Go to www.thesourdoughpodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to check out my gear page for helpful recommendations on a collection of items that I have found helpful or essential when baking my sourdough at home, as well as my top sourdough cookbook recommendations. Have you been inspired by the stories you've heard on the podcast? If so, please consider supporting it by contributing any amount on my support page. Your support would help me in my goal to continue bringing you better and better content and help mitigate some of the expenses of maintaining the website and equipment needed to run the Sourdough Podcast. It's as easy as clicking on the support button and selecting an amount. Or, if you're short on funds, you can always support the podcast by sharing with your friends on social media or by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. As always, don't forget to post your best sourdough pictures on Instagram and tag me or use the hashtag sourdoughpodcast and I'll pick my favorites to share on my page. And be sure to stay tuned after the episode for new music from Weston Perry. Now, back to the episode. My guest is Dr. Emily Bueller. She's joining me from Hillsboro, North Carolina, not too far from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she earned her PhD in chemistry. Soon after completing an internship at the National Academies of Sciences in Washington, D.C., Emily started working at a small artisan bakery. She became fascinated with the science of bread and through a series of events founded her own publishing company to publish her book, Bread Science, in 2006. Emily now works as a freelance copy editor and continues to write and teach baking classes. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I am super excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, you know, I, I know so many bakers on Instagram and have just really been excited to hear from you and uh, just been sending me a bunch of questions and um, a lot of them were have read your book, obviously, and we're just, uh, have been looking forward to this interview, um, like myself, but, um, I guess they can't see me smiling cause it's a <laughs> podcast, but I am smiling. Well, you know, I, what I wanted to talk about a little bit today, of course, we always like to talk about, um, people's kind of journeys into sourdough. Um, but just, I guess generally, I think, you know, a lot of sourdough bakers like myself are are fascinated by the uh, the magic of sourdough and natural fermentation. And I think we use the word magic many times because we, we really can't wrap our minds around how, you know, this, this seemingly lifeless pile of flour, you know, when mixed with water and starter, maybe a little bit of salt can, you know, physically transform uh, before our eyes. And, you know, and through the myst- these mysterious circumstances become this like life-giving, delicious you know, cornerstone of civilization. Um, and luckily for us, there's, you know, there's brilliant minds like your own out there that have dedicated themselves to, you know, furthering our understanding of bread through science and uh, can answer some of those big questions that, you know, we inevitably uh, confront when learning the craft of sourdough. 
Um, but, you know, before we jump into the science of bread, Emily, do you think, um, I know you, like so many of our guests, did not originally set out to be a, a baker or a bread science author, perhaps, no. um, or even maybe a chemist. Um, but uh, do you think you could tell us a little bit your, about your journey? Sure. Well, I got into chemistry, I think it was a little bit by default. I had a very good high school chemistry teacher. Um, you know, I liked all my subjects, but he was just inspiring. So when I got to college, I kept taking classes. And then, you know, family kept saying, oh, chemistry, you'll get a good job in that. So I thought, sure, why not? But I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about what that meant or anything. So I just kind of stuck with it. Um, but I, I'll add that I, I minored in fine arts in college, so I did get my my that side of my brain um, had something to do too. But I went to grad school kind of because I didn't know what else to do. And then when I got to grad school, you know, the first two years you're taking a lot of classes, and I love classes because I like the learning and taking notes and studying. Um, but then the last three years were um, almost all work in the lab. And I realized I really did not like doing lab work. I, I liked writing the papers. Um, I liked when I still got to teach some. But I sort of realized that there were limited options. Um, at, at the time, they mostly talked about your options were working for a research company or being a professor. Um, they, I'm, I'm happy to say that nowadays they talk more about science writing as a career or um, PR or, you know, working with the press about science. But back, back when I was there, they, they didn't talk about that so much. So I didn't really know what my options were. And then, as you mentioned, I had an internship at the National Academies in D.C. Um, where I met all these great people who kind of encouraged me to break out of the lab role if it wasn't making me happy. But I didn't really know where I wanted to go. And so I had friends who worked at the bakery. They made it sound like a lot of fun. You know, I just wanted to take a break and figure out my next steps. I didn't really expect it to last as long as it did. Um, and I had no bread making experience. I think they hired me because uh, a few people had left all at once since so they needed people. Did you have um, um, much baking experience or did you grow up baking at all? At all? Okay. I, I don't, I mean, I'd probably made bread once with a friend. I, uh-huh. I didn't really know anything about it, but they hired me. And so I just learned on the job, you know, working full time mm-hmm. in the bakery. Um, but I immediately realized there's a lot of chemistry going on here and wanted to learn more about it, but could not find the information written anywhere. So I bought all the books I could find. A lot of times they just kind of skimmed the surface and didn't give the detail I wanted. And uh, someone asked me to teach a class through the local art center. And that led to me and my co-teacher trying to put together a little manual. And so it had some of the how-to information um, as well as a little bit of the science, what I could find. And the students were just very enthusiastic about it. And that was kind of the impetus for writing the book. So um, so that's how I got started in it. And I continued, I was in the bakery for seven years, I think. Um, but once the book came out, I, it felt a little bit like I had learned everything I was going to learn at that location. And I also felt a little bit like ready to move on to other things. Um, Also, I will say, I think working at a bakery is a really hard job. You know, there's heavy lifting, early hours. Um, It's a lot of physical labor. Plus you're using your brain. If you're, you know, you're doing math, you're keeping track of times. Um, It can be really hot. It can be really noisy. So it was just, I think, um, I, I could see that I probably would not be able to handle it um, into old age. So, um, so I moved on to some other things, but um, I'm really glad I got the chance to learn yeah. what I did and, and to get the book done. It, it sounds, you know, I, I've had a handful of interviews at this point and it's so interesting to hear how many different people all have this a similar strand running through their stories where, you know, they just kind of, fell into bread from a, a very unique background that has nothing to do with bread. And it just found them at kind of the right place in the right time uh, on their career path or in their, in their life. And, uh, and it kind of sets up, you know, this, uh, this passion, you know, and, uh, yeah. but yeah, like you said, I, you know, then again, the more I talk to bakers, 
on this podcast, the more I realize, like, man, just how hard how hard they work, and yes, the math that's involved, and, um, and yeah, there's just this this, this skill set that that you really need to learn, you know, on the job, and uh, and definitely having you know some scientific knowledge or understanding of what's going on uh, could be so advantageous. Yeah, there was a lot of things you would, um, like you would learn, I would mix the poolishes every Thursday afternoon um, and then take all the temperatures and it would be like, okay, well, this one's a little warm, so that goes on the floor and this one's a little cold, so that goes on the table and just stuff like that where you're making adjustments all the time to make the process smoother the next day for the bakers who are going to come in and need them to be fully risen. Um, so there was just like a lot of that that was continuous that then gets sort of embedded in you that um, understanding of is it rising too fast or too slow and what can I do to fix it or fixing mistakes is also um, something you you learn to do because you don't want to waste a whole batch of dough if you you know it's too dry or too wet and you just learn to make those adjustments. Yeah, I, I can imagine as a, as a chemist, you know, you're just you're sitting there in this bakery and you just feel like you're you're in the petri dish or you're you know just <laughs> you know this this huge experiment's going on around you. Um, so let's let's jump into the book, Emily. Um, again, you know, as I told you before we we started the interview, I just I've been just devouring your book and and it's really I think what it. What I loved about your book, Emily, and what it really, I think, did for me was, uh, you know, it took sourdough baking, which, you know, at times could be like this this chaotic frenzy of reactions and temperatures and uh, anxiety, <laughs> really. And, um, and it kind of gave me this, uh, your writing kind of gave me this beautiful picture, you know, of this, of this, you know, explosion of life and all these perfectly synchronized microorganisms working together. And it kept having this, like mental picture of, of, of this like symphony, uh, you know, going on. And, uh, and I thought it was just really beautiful the way you wrote it and, um, Thank the you. illustrations you, you incorporate into it were extremely helpful. Um, and, and I think secondly, um, it showed me that, you know, in a lot of instances where I thought maybe there was, you know, um, just one thing going on in one part of the, process of sourdough that you know maybe um like folding or adding salt you know something that i i thought maybe just accomplished one goal um it really served many functions and uh-huh. uh and when it comes to sourdough you know your book you really get kind of just cemented in you know your actions really have to be purposeful and uh because there's so many consequences uh in the outcome of the bread um but uh so that's that's what I, I really enjoyed about your book and and um but you know, you kind of dialing back a little bit, you said you you know, you were teaching a class at the time and I just wanted to find out a little bit more about your motivation to write you talked about how some of your students were really asking these questions and Yeah, I think um they their interest in our little dinky manual that we made that kinda showed me that other people were interested in it too. But it was also just that um, I couldn't find the information in one place with the depth that I was craving. So I, you know, I read different books that would just give you just the littlest bit and I wanted more, but then there would also be these huge textbooks that were hundreds of dollars for baking students. Um, a lot of times that material had more detail, but it often was aimed more at commercial baking where you'd be adding different additives or using different machinery. So not always relevant to the home baker. So um, I started, let me see, I guess I, I had this idea to write a book and to include the science, but I also wanted to capture everything I had learned in the bakery while I was still a beginner and it was still sort of fresh in my head. So the parts that are less scientific, but just like about shaping and how you're getting the gas out and you're creating strength, those different lessons. I also wanted to get that down on paper and the first version of the book that I, I'm not published, but just my first draft had just a short chapter on the science and then 
it had all the other chapters with the different steps of the process. And I thought it was finished. And then I spent about a year trying, you know, sending proposals to publishers and getting rejected. Um, and so after about a year, I decided to self-publish it, which was really strange at the time. I know self-publishing is very accepted nowadays, but back then, you know, I remember my grad school advisor just looked at me in disgust, like, because, <laughs> you know, you know you, in science, you would never self-publish your research. That would just be ridiculous. But so it was a little weird. It was also really hard to figure out how to do that process, but that's a whole other story. Um, yeah, but once that- I decided to... That's an interesting oh, point you, you you bring up, Emily, because, you know, I mean, what year was this around when you were, you had your manuscripts? Well, I finished in 2006 um, as far as publishing, but it was, once I decided to self-publish, I mean, it was kind of like two more years before I figured it all out. Um, but I also, it gave me this feeling of freedom and I thought, you know, I'm going to include more science because I can do whatever I want. But of course, you know, that's a good thing that there's more science. I just hadn't really thought a publisher would be interested in that. So it was about another year of research. And um, it was really hard to find the bits and pieces I wanted. I mean, I read about 10 times as many articles as actually are referenced in the book. And a lot of it, I was very lucky that NC State in Raleigh um, has an agricultural program. So they had all the wheat chemistry journals and I could um, go read them in the library. I, I should also add, this was before USB drives. So I was Xeroxing. I mean, I must have spent hundreds of dollars Xeroxing papers so I can bring them home with me. And I would just, I would um, take the bus over to Raleigh. It would take me like an hour and a half to get there on the bus. And I would spend all Saturday reading papers and then come home. Um, But it was like, eventually I found the parts I needed. Um, uh, But that was, it was a huge process to, to dig out the science. And then, you know, those papers are hard to understand. And even if you've been through grad school and read a lot of them, they're still hard for me to understand. I usually have to do a first read through and it seems like this doesn't make any sense. And then the second read through, it makes a little bit more sense. But a lot of times it it really takes sitting down and and making notes to figure out what the papers are saying. So um, I can no longer remember what your question was. Well, no, uh, no, I I think you you accomplished that goal because it it really is something that, you know, is, is easy to read for a non chemist and, uh, and it really does kind of unpack a lot of ideas um, that are seemingly abstract and, and that I can't, you know, before, you know, didn't make a lot of sense. But, um, but yeah, it sounds like you were, you know, kind of ahead of your time when you were writing this book <laughs> because I, I, I know I can think of a handful of uh, sourdough people that have, you know, self-published books and, and you know, I don't think people, you know, think about that for a minute about, you know, oh, this isn't published or, or you know, by a, an official publisher. But anyway, we can get our hands on this information. People get their hands on it. And Well, I'm glad it's more, accept- publishing is more accessible now. I'm, I'm really glad to see that direction happening thanks to the internet. So. Yeah, thanks internet. <laughs> and USB uh, drives. Um, so I wanted to talk about, you know, in chapter two, I believe, my favorite chapter, your longest chapter, um, you really, you break down the bread science basics and you kind of dive deeper into all the main players of dough chemistry and sugars and starches, yeast bacteria. And on page 38, you say, um, you know, in bread baking, we are stealing their technology, talking about the enzymes and the yeast and the mixture, and we're using it for our own purposes. And you point out that all of the necessary bread-making reactions are basically inherent in the ingredients of bread, um, and they're just basically you know waiting to be unlocked. Can you unpack that idea a little bit as as uh, as a chemist for us? Sure. I guess you know I, I came into the research just thinking, well, how does the process happen? You know, so we know that yeast needs to quote unquote, eat sugar. But then we read that flour is mostly starch. So how does the starch turn into sugar for the yeast to eat? Um, And so I was more like the clinical mind of just figuring out what the, what the order there was, what little chemical reaction was happening. But then I I think I, I must've read something about why are these enzymes there in the first place? And, and that it was just such a like big pitch, 
picture moment of your mind kind of opening like, oh, like the flowers already have the, you know, amylases, amylases. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. And I hear different people say it differently. But um, just that, that idea that all the ingredients were already there because the plant is going to need to break down that starch at some point. So it has this enzyme ready to do it. Um, and then we activate it by adding water. I thought that was a fascinating idea. Yes. Um, so was that? Yeah, no, I definitely, you know, I, I think what you said is like that I resonated with is like, you know, the big uh, concepts of like, well, this needs to happen for this to happen. But, you know, how do we get from each one of these little steps? How does how does water and the, the flower what's going on there? I know that it makes this wet dough and, and that supposedly that the yeast is eating it and making bubbles. Uh, we'll come back to that. But um, yeah, but how, you know, how did these individual steps and in, in processes happen? Um, One thing I think is really interesting too is that, so yeast is an organism, it's a living thing, but enzymes, we kind of talk about them sometimes, like they're also living things. And that would almost be easier if they were like little critters and they're doing something, but they're actually not. They're actually just molecules. And I just think that's fascinating that they can, you know, just based on their shape and what atoms they have and how they react, they can do such a specific function like find starch and break some sugars off it when they're not thinking. They're not, I mean, not, I guess yeast don't really think, but they're, they're not living. They're just, performing this function um I, I don't know i think that it's hard to wrap your head around that yeah no I, i'm thinking of your illustration on page or, uh, 37 um you know and i went back we have kind of like this um this map of you know starches and water you know are converted to complex sugars and then you know combined with yeast um are broken down into simple sugars and then that allows fermentation to start and i, and I remember and I ended up writing, uh, you know, enzyme above amylases and enzymes above maltase and, and, and invertase because, yeah, that's something, you know, enzymes aren't something that I think we focus on. Tried, we tend to focus more on the yeast and the bacteria and our, our starter and, and all those um, little microorganisms. But, yeah, we don't really think about the enzymes as much or we're not taught to to consider them I guess and you know I don't know that I had a, a good sense of them until after the book came out I wrote an article about enzymes and um, it was uh, Peter Reinhardt had been interested in it and he we sort of he asked me about it so I wrote this article and it never ended up getting published anywhere but it should be on my website and I made a note if it's not I'm gonna go put it back there um, because it, it, so it's just, you know, a few pages, but it had a lot of detail about enzymes and some pictures. So, um, now I'm, now I'm curious if it's still there or not, because I haven't seen it in a while, but I'll find it and make sure it's up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they really are like the un, unsung heroes because really if there's the enzymes don't do what they do, the yeast, you know, will have, you know, a very hard time doing what it needs to do. Right. Um, and fermentation and won't won't take place. So, um, yeah, that is that is a huge concept that you really shed light on for me. And, you know, talking about wild yeast and versus you know maybe comparing it to store bought yeast. Um, in chapter three, you kind of address pre ferments, including sourdough starters and levain, and you start off the section by stating that sourdough uh, starters contain bacteria and wild yeasts that perform basically the same function as store, store-bought baker's yeast, uh, converting the sugars in the flour via fermentation, um, but with different end products that give distinct flavors to the bread. And, you know, this is something that I've always wondered about. You know, a lot of people, I think, get into sourdough for, for health reasons. Um, and a lot of, some even say that they're able to eat sourdough with, uh, with gluten sensitivities where they weren't able to before. Um, but, you know, in my mind, in, in thinking of this uh, section of the book, you're saying, you know, they're basically performing the same function um, regardless, you know, they're both yeast. Um, and so in my mind, I'm, I've always had this question of, 
um, you know, other than the the slower fermentation and and the sour flavor, um, you know, why would sourdough be any healthier, um, or if if they're performing the same function? You know, is this just a myth, um, or is there there's something more going on there? You can kind of shed some light. <laughs> I, I don't feel at all qualified to answer this question. Um, I know so. Commercial yeast is just like one very specific strain. And so this one version of the reactions is happening. So the respiration and fermentation. And so with the a sourdough starter where you have a mix of different yeasts and bacterias, I would say you might get, you know, more variation in those reactions because of these different species. But um, I'm Is really it not maybe sure. more of a nut- nut- nutrition science question. Um, I mean, chemistry question. I would think so. I would say that the sourdough dough is probably more acidic, so that might you know acid affects the proteins; they unravel differently in a more or less acidic environment. So there's probably a lot of different things going on. Um, I wouldn't say that nutritional benefits are phony. But I would have, I'd caution people to just not just believe everything they read. So a good example would be um, recently I heard of an article where they uh, this was looking at your blood sugar and how it spikes. And they showed that um, sa- if you ate sourdough bread, it didn't mm. spike as much as with yeasted bread. Um, but then there was a study that came out after that where they actually looked at it again and it was like different in every single person. And that made a lot more sense to me. So it was like your personal microbiome in your um, intestines, the way it's digesting everything, you know, with some people, the sourdough did make their blood sugar spike. And with some people it didn't. And then with some people, the whole grain made their blood sugar spike and others it didn't. So to me, it seems like it's a far more complicated situation than a lot of people maybe want to hear. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I would just kind of caution people, you know, to it might be more individualized than people okay. think or just to, you know, read things with a grain of salt. And nutrition, if you look at it, it's just been like changing, you know, every year there's a new study out and people change their minds. So, um Yeah, I I sort of hesitate to give nutritional advice or to uh, quickly believe anything I read. Do you think? Do you think it has something to do with the fact that um, the baker's yeast, you know, the Saccharomyces cervicea, the single strand, um, works, or does it? I mean, work by itself, uh, whereas the, the sourdough starter, as I understand it, has. Uh, not just yeast, but also lots of bacteria going on. And they, I mean, the two different kinds of organisms do seem to work in sync where, you know, one prefers one kind of sugar and the other prefers the other kind. So there is some symbiosis there. Um, I'm not sure how that would play out in the final nutritional content of the bread though. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the mystery continues, but I think that's a good point that you bring up, you know, that when it comes down to our, you know, our microbiomes, who knows what's going on in there? And you wonder, you know, if it sounds like that's something you could change, though, you know, you can change your own microbiome by the food that you're eating. And if you're eating, mm-hmm. you know, different types of bread, uh, then your your biome adjusts to that and processes it differently. Maybe someday we'll we'll know the answers to that. But uh, that's that's the beauty of sourdough, though, is that there's so much mystery involved. And, and even you know, even if you do understand the science, like like a PhD in in chemistry would, there, there's all there's still mystery in it. There, it there's mm-hmm. beauty in that. Yes. So kind of staying on that line of you know the differences between sourdough and industrial yeast, maybe getting away from like nutritional science. Um, you know, a lot of sourdough bakers use a starter, you know, we, and we maintain that and feed it for months or years or decades in some cases. A few of my, our listener questions, including some of my own, had to do with generational changes, I guess, was kind of the, the phrase. Um, they wanted to know more about those changes over the lifespan of the microorganism, you know, and, and how, you know, my question is, you know, you're feeding a starter and then you, you put it into the dough 
um, you know, what's the lifespan of a, of a yeast cell? And, and, and are there, you know, thousands of generations of, of uh, reproduction going on um, over, the, over the lifespan of the bread making process? Or is, or is it just, uh, you know, one generation? Or is that, does that make sense? <laughs> it does, but I've, I've actually, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I have an answer. I know, you know, because I think about the yeast and how quickly they reproduce under the right conditions. Uh-huh. But I never thought about that original parent yeast. Does it just keep hanging around and keep reproducing? I'm not really sure how long each one lives. Um, yeah. Well, and I think maybe the more important idea uh, would be, you know, how could you use that to your advantage? Um, one listener, uh, T. Weber SF, I believe is his name. You know, he wants to know more about those changes and how you can... Um, are there any advantages to like an older starter? Um, and, and can you design a starter? I don't know if that's the right word, but design a starter with more or less uh, sour flavor? I guess so. There's so some changes that you would do. This is not what he's asking, but when you're making your bread, you know, would be how long you let it rise before you bake it. Do you do an overnight for more? flavor or just bake it the same day for less flavor you can control that a little bit with how much starter is in your recipe then um also the temperature um that the dough rises at and that that's the um on one hand it's do you put it in a fridge where it's cold or leave it out where it's warm but then within each of those there's a range you know of is it 60 or is it 70 and um I I wrote some articles uh, a few years ago, and I was lucky. I got to interact with uh, Francisco Migoya, who's the head chef on the Modernist Bread team. And he told me that, uh, I'm looking at my notes here, proofing at cold temperatures generally results in a harsher, more acidic flavor. And then um, having the dough out of the fridge is a more mellow flavor. But he also had, you know, they had found their favorite flavor and it was very specific temperatures. Hmm. And I I think that would probably be subjective. So bakers could experiment and find, you know, what they like best. I also think when you're baking at home, you know, your fridge is one temperature and there's limited leeway to adjust that. You know, you might get a little dorm fridge instead of at 50 degrees if you want to experiment but there's only so much you can do um, in a home kitchen to control your temperatures. But I, I do think it's a bit subjective. Um, also, I think having a wetter starter versus a drier starter can control flavor. But I've heard different opinions on which is more acidic or stronger, sour, and which is mellower. So again, Francisco said that a wetter starter produced a more acidic bread with a stronger sour flavor but i've definitely heard the opposite from people so it it probably there's so many variables um and so getting back to your question of how how much you can control you know if you've created this starter and you're not happy with it and you know you can make these adjustments using temperature um and timing but you might try wetter or drier um starters uh, but this kind of leads to an, a different question. Can you totally change the population of bacteria that you have in there? And so this is something I think that goes back. There's some long-held beliefs. So I know you've probably heard that the location where you create your starter, that determines what's in it. And that, I think, was believed for a long time. Um, lately, the consensus seems to be it's more about the flour you use, which has microorganisms in it, and then also the process you use and the care you take and just the way you do things determine what microorganisms are in there. And uh, 
So there was a really interesting citizen science experiment, and it's at NC State. And uh, if you want to find it, if you just Google NC State sourdough, um, it should pop up. But then the, the professor's name is Rob Dunn. And they basically collected sourdoughs from the whole world and ran them through their equipment and determined what microorganisms were in there. Uh, and they have I'm their... familiar with... I didn't know that was at uh, NC State. So they have their um, results uh, online and you can go look on yours and see what was in it. And so I just kind of flipped through the map quickly um, so I would click on one kind of bacteria and a bunch of dots would appear and they were kind of all over the country. And every single one I clicked on, the dots were all over the country. And I'm, I'm a little worried that I'm misinterpreting this, <laughs> but it seemed like it was saying that, you know, I didn't click on any one bacteria and it only appeared in one location. So mm -hmm. it does seem like maybe the flower or, you know, something else is at play. Um, but the other kind of big question would be, does the starter change over time? So if you create it in one location and move or start using a different flower, does uh, the population you have in there change in who, who which bacteria and yeasts you have? And that, um, I think for a long time, there was a paper in the 70s that showed that those microorganisms can kind of resist outsiders because they've created this acidic environment that they thrive in. And so outsiders would come in and die off. So I think for a long time, people believed that, um, that that population was stable. And I don't feel like I've seen conclusive evidence one way or another. So I don't like to take a stand on this when people argue different ways, but it did uh, seem like these days there was more feeling that the care you're giving your starter and the flower you're using might result in, in changes in the bacteria and microorganisms, microorganisms and thus changes in the flavor. So I don't have any concrete answer like use this kind of flower to get a more sour flavor. Um, it would be great if that data existed. And but I think it would just take a massive effort with people submitting you know their taste tests and their flower types and how they take care of everything and there's just so many variables but um i think it's definitely something you can play with but there's not clear guidelines for how to change your starter yeah and then i think another you know again there there's that cross section of anecdotal evidence and in me myth and and actual when it comes down to science, what can you prove, you know, um, is happening? Uh, one, one of the questions I think is, you know, oh, I have this, the starter that my grandmother's grandmother gave her and it's 200 years old. And I think a lot of bakeries I know in San Francisco claim, you know, oh, we have a, a 200 year old starter. And are you saying that there might not necessarily, you know, over the 200 years that the starter exists, it's not changing as much or, or it's always changing or does it kind of uh, hit a point where it, it's just not transforming as much? So I think the it's generally accepted that when you first create a starter, it's going to have a milder flavor and then over time that flavor grows. But that's only up to a point and that's just as the population develops and settles in. So after I, I do think it reaches a plateau um, and it, I think it would stay the same if you kept taking care of it the same way. And then it might change if you changed the flower you're giving it or the conditions you're using. But um, I don't have a good time for that. I, I think, you know, someone had told me nine months, but again, that's one of those anecdotal stories. So I don't know uh, if that's a concrete time, yeah, but, yeah. but also it probably, well, you know, different people's taste buds are different. And so there's probably also a lot of variation because I've, I've done taste tests with people at science fairs where, you know, one person insists bread A is more sour and the other one says, <laughs> no, no, bread B is. And so, um, so there's probably some variation there too. Again, it, it's, it sounds like it, it's hard to say definitively that it's one specific, uh, point uh that's it's changing you know is it strictly the the age of the starter probably not because there's so many other var variables affecting the way we experience the bread and the flavor and so yeah it's that's that's an interesting 
question that comes up. Um, another yeast-related um, revelation I had uh, reading your book, and this is something I posted on Instagram about and uh, got a lot of, of interesting, funny feedback, um, is the kind of the relationship between bubbles and yeast. And um, this one really kind of altered my perception of what's going on in my dough. You, you kind of burst my, my bubble, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, and you point out that yeast, in fact, does not create air bubbles. Um, I'm like, wait, wait, what? Wait a minute, what? What's the go? What did you just say? Um, can you explain that a little bit more for our listeners? I'm referring to page 81 in the book. Sure. And again, this is one of those things that you, for me, it's still kind of hard to wrap my head around. But yeah, so uh, yeah, it's really easy to picture. You know, we think of carbon dioxide and we think of a gas, mm-hmm. but carbon dioxide can also be dissolved in something. And so the, I guess the, I'll start, the way they figured this out was they didn't know when the air that is in dough gets in there. And so they did some experiments. And I think there's a picture on page 80 where one of the breads they mixed in a, you know, the mixer was in a nitrogen box. So there was no, um, or it was in a vacuum. So there was no air in it. And it just looked totally different than the one that was mixed in normal air. And so the, they concluded that all the air bubbles get introduced during the kneading process. And after that, we're just, you know, when we punch our dough and a bunch of gas comes out, you're leaving behind tiny little bubbles. And then the yeast produces carbon dioxide, but it's not producing a I mean, if you think about it, it's producing, say it produces one molecule of carbon dioxide. How can that one molecule be a whole bubble? So it's just this molecule that's dissolved in dough and it hangs out and it migrates around. And then if it comes to a bubble and it, you know, goes into the bubble and becomes gaseous, so then it contributes to the bubble, uh, which is these molecules that have some amount of heat and are moving around causing this bubble to exist so so yeah it's it is a tricky thing to wrap your head around that the carbon dioxide can be dissolved in the dough as well and then you know for it's leaving from the outside of the dough but thankfully it is trapped in these bubbles and that leads to another one of the common misconceptions which is that the carbon dioxide and other gases are trapped in these like balloons caught created by gluten. Well, if you think about it, gluten, again, it's not a solid sheet, it's molecules. And those are just like strands. So it's, I believe it's actually the, the dough around the bubble is saturated with carbon dioxide. And so the carbon dioxide stays in the bubble just because it's easier to be in the bubble than to go back into solution in the dough. Yeah, it's just super fascinating. You you provide like a uh, a physics equation to explain it, which I just skipped over because <laughs> <laughs> I you know I'm not a, a physicist, um, but you know that uh, um, I it's it still I have this very I guess now of a, a very different concept of what's going on in my dough and uh, and why you know, initially mixing the dough and getting those air bubbles in is so important uh, to, you know, a good mix because, again, the the yeast is not going to produce any bubbles. It's going to contribute to the existing uh, bubbles in there. So, yeah, that, that, that was something that was uh, super interesting. Could we talk a little bit, Emily, and I know we're running out of time here. Maybe we can go back to water um the ingredient obviously foundational to bread here the question from one of my listeners uh at bu7amni says i am new to baking and i'm baking my own bread and i still wonder what is the impact of water um water quantity um you know and what happens if i increase it or decrease it how would that change my my by final product and, um, and, you know, I think when it comes to, you know, maybe this newer 
um, wave of interest in sourdough. And when I kind of found sourdough, I started making these no-need breads, you know, and these high-hydration loaves. We're talking like, you know, 75% uh, baker's percentage and higher of water, um, which is kind of a different style maybe than the bread you were making um, when you started baking. What role would you say water plays in a in a high hydration loaf, and what and how is it that a no need type of bread is even possible? Okay, so um, uh, that was something I wondered for a long time and didn't really have a good answer for um, because I would always you know tell students that uh, the kneading process is helping this gluten network develop and that you know helps make your dough tough and stretchy. So I, I did kind of always struggle with what is a no need, but, um, you know, there are no need recipes are often the high hydration with a series of folds and then a long fermentation time. And then they often cook in a Dutch oven or some kind of heated casserole dish. So finally, and I should once again, credit Francisco modernist bread, um, kind of explained that, uh, the gluten developing is a matter of hydration and so that hydration will slowly happen over time in a no-knead bread. And when we knead dough, it's kind of like we're just speeding it up. So it's just two different ways to get the bread to hydrate so that the gluten can form and develop. And that I seem to resolve that discrepancy. So I think if you're not talking about no-knead, but just the water content, um, it generally seems that uh, higher water content will give you those bigger holes. Um, but the flip side is that the dough might not rise as much. So um, I know in the bakery, the moisture content of our flour twice a year, it would kind of shift and we would, you know, we nev never looked on the bag to see what the moisture content was. It would just be that one day the sourdough would come out of the oven slightly flat and we'd say, oh, we better adjust the recipe. And we would drop the water one or two percent. And the next day they would poof up like usual. So huh. the, it can affect the height of your bread. But then, you know, you don't want it. If you err on the dry side, you'll lose those beautiful holes in the crumb. And, um, and then your bread also might not be as moist and delicious as it could be. And then with the no-need breads, like the hydration, I think it's important to have it higher um, so that the gluten can form even without all of that physical kneading. Um, usually there are some folds in there that act as a little bit of kneading. And I'll just end by saying that that cooking in the cast iron pot, I think that is the best idea, whether it's no kneaded bread or regular kneaded bread, um, because it really, the heat of the pot, having the cover on there to trap the steam, it just does a lot of good things for your loaf in the oven. So... Yeah, that's and, a then good that's, idea and then the steam is another way that the water interacts with your loaf, and uh, and you kind of explain that it has a, a kind of two purposes. It uh, it actually cools the steam. This is again a counterintuitive. It, it it cools the bread, which I guess makes sense because it's it's water and it's going to be cooler than the hot air, uh, and it also helps it to expand. Um, it keeps the cr the crust moist and it allows it to expand where if there was not steam, it would get hard and it would keep the loaf from actually um, being able to right. grow in Correct. volume. So yeah, water again, obviously super important to, to bread. Um, some of the other questions I had from one vanilla bean and uh, Samira Dillies um, had to do with refrigeration and you kind of, talked about this briefly um but what might be the benefit uh, benefit of refrigerating dough that's that's another thing i think a lot of us um nowadays do is we'll you know retard our loaves in the refrigerator overnight and um samira's question is is a is uh she says is a cold long proof or a quick room temperature um, proof better for an open crumb. Um, and then one vanilla bean says, um, is it okay if I do both a refrigerated bulk 
and a refrigerated proof. Uh, you know, and so I, I, you know, to me, the question is, you know, what, how much can the yeast, um, how does, how much can yeast affect the dough if it is inactive due to the cold? Isn't that, it seems to me like it's somewhat counterintuitive if you want to develop flavor to stop the yeast by refrigerating it. Right. And I, so with your last point, I always kind of wondered that too, because at 40 degrees, the yeast is supposed to be pretty inactive. So I sort of picture the dough going into your fridge and the dough isn't immediately 40 degrees. So there's some time as it's cooling off where everything's continuing, but just slowing down. But then my thinking is that um, even if the yeast have become mostly dormant, there are other reactions, you know, between the different organic molecules that might still be going on at the colder temperature. But it, I, I do agree that there's something that I don't get there, like, does it completely stop at 40? And in the bakery, we had a 50 degree cooler. So it would slow down, but keep going overnight. And then we would pull the loaves out in the morning, and they would be perfect and ready to go in the oven. But with the 40-degree fridge, it seems more like a process of slowing down. Then you pull it out in the morning, and then there's a process of it warming up. So it, it's a longer fermentation, and there are those intermediate temperatures. But yes, while it is at 40 degrees in your refrigerator, um, supposedly the yeast have stopped acting. So it might be more the, um, the intermediate temperatures where the reaction continues. Um, as for the so the cold and long proof versus a quick room temperature proof. I mean, there's just so many different <laughs> recipes and, you know, I, I've, I know what I got used to in our bakery, but then I've seen people in their sourdough or their rustic, you know, they all, we all use the same names, but it's a completely different process. So it really probably just depends on what makes the bread that comes out the way you like. Mm. Um, the open crumb question, I feel unsure about because I, I think I, when I think about the breads I've made, you know, I've seen that open crumb both in uh, breads that were baked the same day and breads that were baked after an overnight in the fridge. I've also seen a very not open crumb with both of those breads. So I think one thing might just be that... Um, Sometimes refrigeration adds a, li a bit more, um, like it makes the process a little more confusing and you don't know exactly, you know, sometimes it can be hard to tell if the bread is fully risen after it's spent a night in the fridge. So I find it a little easier to just bake a bread in one, you know, one straight stretch without using the refrigerator and so it might be that you have an open crumb just because it's an easier technique to figure out when the bread is fully risen uh, but that's not to say that you always get an open crumb without using the fridge that's just um, something I think about I just find it easier not to use the fridge but um, yeah I don't know that I have a good answer that one way is always giving you the more open crumb versus the other way. Yeah, I think that kind of comes back to just fermentation in general and and uh, what's going on in the proofing process. And uh, one of the questions from Gretsch Graham had to do with, you know, her question is, I'm wondering about the relationship between fermentation, acidity, and proofing. And she says, when is a dough fully fermented without being overproofed? And we're talking, you know, refrigeration is something you could do to help control or or dial back or um, that fermentation that's going on. And it's not like it's something different is happening when you're you're uh, fermenting it versus proofing it. You're, the fermentation, as I understand, is still going on. It's just a different um, step um, in the process. So maybe um, maybe one way to think about it is you have this dough and it's fermenting and it gets more and more gassy until you feel like it's pretty well risen and full of gas. And so if you want it to ferment longer, you punch it down, fold it and let it rise again. So you can kind of double the amount of time it ferments and let it rise again. And again, it becomes fully proofed. 
but there's a limited amount of times you're going to be able to do that before the microorganisms that are in there run out of the food they need and stop producing gas. So um, different doughs, well, baker's yeast, obviously, you'll probably, you could keep going a few more rises before it runs out and sourdough might be a little more um, delicate in that regard. But I think that if, if she wanted to figure out how many times she could punch it down, um, you would just try it once and time everything and take temperatures and see how many rises you get um, before it's not rising anymore, how many punch downs you get before it's not rising anymore um, yeah. to determine how, how many. Conduct how a little experiment. experiment in your own, your own kitchen. I think that's something I know. Uh, it's another commonality I think in our community is that we're always curious about, you know, if we tweak this one little step here, what's going to happen. And if we do this, what's going to happen. Um, so there's there, so we're, many of we're them. definitely experimenters, uh, yes. the sourdough yeah. community. And we're always trying to figure out, you know, how to improve our bread. We're always, you know, on the quest for our, our unique, uh, personal, uh, perfect loaf. Um, but one, you know, one kind of final in wrapping up our conversation, Emily, I, towards the end in chapter seven, you kind of address proofing and baking and on page 193, I think one of the takeaways for me, um, was to, you know, err on the side of overproofing, and you, cause you have, you have a picture of, um, you know, kind of nine loaves on a rack and, they're all um, baked the same way, except for one. You know, one rack is overproofed, one is well-proofed, and one is underproofed. And you kind of show that you know, even if you overproof it, there's so many other factors. Even at this point in the in the bread making process, where scoring uh, the way you score the bread can can really affect the final loaf. And so you know, you showed how. You know, in the overproofed loaves, in in the well-proofed loaves, um, even if you score them, you know, if you score them in different ways, you're going to get a flat loaf or or a big. Uh, well, so the with the overproof loaves, those are on the top shelf. The one over on the left was not cut at all, and so that's where you have to be careful when it's overproofed. If you cut it, you might have it deflate on you. So, so the flat, flatter loaves were the ones that were scored um, more or less deeply, but the one that looks nice and big was not scored at all. So that's, I think, but I, I do agree that a lot of times, um, you know, sometimes it can be hard to tell if the bread is fully proofed and ready to go in the oven. And I think a really great way to learn about it is to let it go longer than you think. And then the worst that can happen is it deflates on you. Sometimes even if you don't score it, it does deflate in the oven, but then you know what overproof looks like Mm -hmm. and you can adjust your time and, and what you're looking for the next time. Yeah. And you say, you know, all of, all three loaves, you know, when you're looking at like the underproofed rack, all of those loaves were smaller than the well and overproofed loaves. Um, didn't matter how you scored them. Um, I think that the the idea here was that you know you can, if you have an overproofed loaf, you're gonna have all that flavor happening because of the fermentation. And if you underproof it, you're not you're never even gonna get that all those uh, chemicals and uh, properties changing that give you all the amazing flavors in the first place. Um, and you're never gonna get the the volume, um, even if you do have an over-fermented loaf, there are things you can do with um, folding and scoring to kind of uh, encourage a bigger loaf, um, mm-hmm. even if it's a little um, weakened because of the over-fermentation. But that, that's, that's just encouraged me, like you said, to you know, let it go, let it ferment, figure out what's going on, what it, what it looks like, and then you can always dial back. Emily, we are definitely coming to the end of our time here, and I and I know personally I could just keep picking your brain about just um, concept after concept. There, I just you know my book is just covered in highlights and uh, dog ears, and 
Um, I feel like we can have you as a, a recurring guest and we can just talk for hours and hours and hours and hours. But we have lives. You have a life outside of um, this podcast that you need to get back to. And uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, of course, to talk about any upcoming projects you might have um, that you want our listeners to know about. Um, is there a bread science sequel uh, coming out anytime soon? Is there anything out there you want our listeners to know about? Well, I, I wish I could say there was a bread science sequel, but that is not on my radar. <laughs> I won't say never, but I actually have, um, for the past six years, I've been writing fiction, uh, which I realize a lot of uh, my bread interested people won't necessarily be interested in, but I, I kind of just started that and have really been enjoying it. So I've been spending a lot of time on that. And uh, I have been uh, blogging a little bit more too. So I, um, my web my main website is emilybuehler.com. And if you go there, uh, you can subscribe and I've got it split up into the different categories. So you don't have to hear about my thoughts if you just want news. Oh, I'm updates. sure there's plenty but. of crossover where uh, <laughs> fiction and interested sourdough bakers. I do uh, keep, I keep trying to teach bread um, and it's always beginning classes um, just because, you know, I realize I kind of stepped out of baking. And so the level of expertise that a lot of bakers have, you know, I don't know that I have because I I think you really learn a lot, especially in a small bakery where you're doing the whole process, you know, and I was in a medium sized bakery where I would mix the dough, but then I would leave for the day. And I, I actually used to go back to the store at night to see how things turned out because I wanted to gather all that information. But, uh -huh. um, you know, I think I could have kept learning more had I worked somewhere smaller, but, um, but so I, I do kind of keep teaching these beginner classes. It's just, it's really fun to, have an excuse to bake for a whole week. Um, so I do week-long oh, classes yeah. at the Campbell Folk School. Um, and then I usually teach at the Asheville Bread Festival, which is a really great festival if anyone's in North Carolina. This year, I do not think I'm going to be able to go, which breaks my heart. But um, if anyone's in the area, it's just a lot of fun. And there are workshops you can sign up for and also this big showcase of we have so many local bakeries here now. So that it's, it's a really great event. But um, yeah, I guess that's my, my main writing fiction and I've been doing a lot of freelance editing and then I just try to keep teaching these classes just yeah. to get a little dough time. How can people year. find your classes and how can people um, purchase your book? So uh, the classes are listed on emilybuehler.com. There's a, a menu item for events and then there are also links for the books there, but uh, my website is twobluebooks.com and it is cheaper if you buy them there than if you mm -hmm. buy them you know, yes. somewhere else. So I'll just <laughs> say that. Um, cause yeah, I'll leave it at that, but. Well, great. And I also have, um, a link to your book and your page on my website. So if people could find it there and, um, but yes, um, Emily, it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you this morning, and I just I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us, and uh, really helping us to understand our sourdough um, on a deeper level. And uh, it's just really helped me to appreciate um, the the magic. You know, there's still magic going on um, of, of chemistry and bread science, and uh, I just thank you for that, and thank you for your your time this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Have a great day. Bye, Emily. You too. I put you down there just the other day. I swear, although I don't remember it, I must have been in the middle of something if I've
kind of burst my my bubble so to speak uh, <laughs> uh sorry about that um 